Our passage, Matthew 18, we've been seeing the progression of the teaching of the Lord Jesus, and we've said many times that he begins by dealing with this dispute that has broken out amongst the disciples about who is the greatest, and he teaches how to enter the kingdom, and that must be as a little child, humble and repentant and trusting the Lord Jesus. And so all that follows them from that point to the beginning of the passage is for those who are his children, those who are in the family of God. And the Savior has been teaching about life in the family, how believers should love one another, how there should be that intentional care between believers in the family of God, and when necessary, when there should be discipline in the family to keep one another walking on that right path under the Lord's hand. And then as the passage kind of draws to a close, there is a great emphasis on this whole element of forgiveness and how in Christ we are to be engaged in forgiving one another from hearts of love and tenderness and mercy and the grace that ought to be ours because we understand just how much God has forgiven us, just how much he, he loves us. And when we withhold forgiveness, it hinders our walk with the Lord we don't experience the joy of communion with him as we should. And if we persist in that, then we will experience his chastening. Ephesians 4, verse 32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. But forgiveness is not an easy thing. I want to give you two contrasting examples as we begin one commentator mentions a letter from a little girl, and this is what it says. Dear Dr. Such and Such, I am 10 years old and I have a problem. There is a man who is trying to split our church, but he happens to be my best friend's dad. Because of him, my mum now won't let me talk to Faith. Now, I've talked to Faith about it, and we are puzzled why we just can't get together, and we're upset. Why are they fighting? The answers that they've given just aren't good enough. Just because they're fighting doesn't mean we have to fight, or does it? I'm so confused. All I know is that Faith and I are friends, and our parents aren't. Please find an answer. Love, Katie. The fallout was over something very trivial in the church. And Christians who divide and cannot forgive each other often devastate the lives of those around them, including their families. That's one example. Then let me give you another example, and I've shared this with you before, but it always strikes me as such a wonderful example of forgiveness. In 1997, I was involved in a lot of beach missions and YL open air work, and I can remember at that time hearing the news about a couple called Michael and Joe Pollard, and I also knew their daughter Tamar through UBM and YL, and Michael and Joe Pollard for a number of years, sometimes with their family, had traveled often to Eastern Europe with aid, clothes, medicine, Bibles, etc., in a van. And uh, on a specific trip to Romania, as they approached the border, the lights failed on their vehicle. And so they stopped in a lay-by, and they thought that they would wait for the next day, daylight to come. But during the night, they were disturbed by a loud knocking on the door. And a young man dressed in black, holding ID, stood before them, and in Hungarian, claimed that he was a policeman, that they were illegally parked, and they needed to pay a fine. And even though they doubted his authenticity, they paid the fine of 14 pounds. And they intended then to go to the police in the morning and to explain what had happened. 
But the young man had seen that the vehicle was filled with this aid. And so he returned an hour or so later with others to attack and rob them. Michael tried desperately to start the van, but one of the men smashed the driver's window and beat him to death. The men fled the scene and they left Joe alone with their murdered husband. And helpless, she hid all remaining valuables and she sat seeking the Lord, seeking comfort from the scriptures. And she actually testifies that at that moment, she had amazing peace because she knew that even in that horrible situation, God was with her and he would be with her even if those men returned. And they did return. And they attacked her and they left her for dead. Eventually, Joe was rushed to hospital fighting for her life and Tamar gives testimony of how she was in Kent when the horrific news reached her. And when the news came, it said that she felt numb. She felt obliged that she should cry, but she was in shock and she was clinging to the truth that God works for the good of those who love him. But when she finally saw her mum beaten to within inches of her life and heard of what had happened to her dad, the reality hit home. And this is what she says. Hatred flowed through my veins. I wanted to lash out. It was then that my mum uttered the most amazing words when she said, I don't bear any malice towards them. I actually pray that they will become Christians. And Tamar says, it's the final straw. I stormed out of the room. I was furious. How could she say that? Questions began to flood my mind like, do I really believe that God exists and is in control? Do I really believe that Jesus died in my place to take the punishment as I deserved? And she says, as I answered yes to each one, the question remained, how am I going to respond to this? I knew Jesus was king of my life. I knew I had to accept his teaching to forgive. But how could I do that? How could I turn this hatred to love, anger to peace, revenge to forgiveness? I knew it wasn't humanly possible. And so I prayed and begged God to change me. And he answered. My mind was stilled. And that transformation to be able to forgive took place and has stayed in place through long dark days and even longer darker nights, through pain and confusion, through good times and bad, God's help has remained constant. What is even more remarkable is this, that Joe, when she recovered, visited the men in prison. And she kept in touch with two of them and she gave them Bibles and she told them how that she had forgiven them. Many years later, she received a letter from Isvan Dudas. He was the man who'd murdered her husband, Michael. And he titled his letter, I Cause Death, but I've received life in exchange. And he explained that he had come to know that Jesus had died on the cross in his place. And even though he had killed someone, even God could forgive him because of the Savior. And he wrote, that night I prayed to God as to my father. I asked him to forgive me. And as soon as I declared myself sinful, I started to cry. And the Lord Jesus lifted the burden off my heart. And I asked him, to change me and stay with me forever. And he was saved. A remarkable answer to the prayers of Joe and Tamar and many others who had displayed hearts of forgiveness. It's incredible. But why are there such great differences between the capabilities to forgive? You have a wife and daughter following the murder of their husband and being able to have that compassion towards the murderer 
But you also have two believers in a church family unable to forgive each other over the most minor differences. You see, the Lord Jesus makes it clear that forgiveness is essential amongst the Lord's people and we should be eager to forgive and quick to forgive where there is repentance. And it grieves the master when that is absent. Now, in this parable of the unforgiving servant, this lesson comes with great power. And we saw last time that this element of being forgiven greatly is the key factor. And the Savior, responding to Peter's question about whether there was a limit to forgiveness, he teaches that amongst his children, kingdom citizens, there is no limit to forgiveness where there is true repentance. And so using this parable, the Lord speaks of a king which we saw represents God and a servant, speaking of the believer. And the servant is in this privileged position collecting revenue for the royal treasury. But he's called to account and a terrible debt is revealed. Now, God calls people to regular account, times of conviction when people are called to face God with what they're doing in their life. For some of you, it might be happening again even this morning. And there are these reckonings before the final judgment and he, he brings them before him by conviction through the preaching of the word, the reading of scripture, maybe the, the testimony of other believers or a combination of those things. People are brought to face the reality of the fact that they've got a debt that they owe to God. And this debt which is in the parable is a vast amount. It is an inestimable, incalculable, unpayable debt and we saw how this pictured our sin. And when we're convicted by the power of the Spirit working upon the Word, we are convicted, we are shown the enormity of our sin and the utter sinfulness of our sin. And this servant, he is exposed, he cannot pay, and so the consequences, the punishment are serious. He is faced with losing everything. A lifetime for him and his family in slavery and to sell all his possessions, everything that he had, but it would still be nowhere near the amount that he owed. And we saw that he, he could not earn or pay his way out of the debt, and likewise we cannot earn or pay our way out of the debt of sin. And the sobering thing is, even an eternity in hell cannot settle the debt that we owe. And so this servant falls down before the king. He begs for mercy. He's broken. He's devastated. He's, he's desperate on his face. He's crying out. And in his desperation, he asks for patience, for compassion, for a chance to do better, a chance to make it right. He is desperately grasping for something. Often when a person is brought under conviction of sin, they think in the first instance they've got to sort the problem out themselves. But the reality is there is nothing that we can do. And then verse 27, the master of that servant is moved with compassion, released him, forgave him the debt. Amazing grace in that verse. The king forgave an incomprehensible debt from a heart of loving compassion. The debtor is loosed. He is released from his obligation. The king himself absorbs the cost. The servant deserved nothing but punishment. Friends, we don't deserve anything from the Lord. And yet when you come to him with a broken heart over your sinfulness, knowing that you can never pay the debt and crying out for mercy, facing eternal punishment, he is willing and he is able to forgive. And he does so on the basis of the saving work of his son, Jesus Christ, 
who secured the salvation of his people, the payment of their debt at the cross. In Christ, if we are believers this morning, we have received extravagant grace. Wonderful grace. And that is the basis from which the rest of this parable flows. And notice verse 28. We've seen forgiven greatly. But then I want you to see forgiveness forgotten. In the light of all that, what follows is is shocking. You know, how quick is this servant to forget what he had just been forgiven? Verse 28, that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, and he laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, pay me what you owe. So the emphasis, that servant, is to make sure that you don't think it's some other servant. It is the same servant who then, after being forgiven greatly, goes out intentionally to find the other person. It's not an accidental meeting. They don't just happen to be in the same place. He goes out to seek this other fellow servant. And that's another key element. It is one of his fellow servants. It's another one in the family. It is another servant of the king, even though they are in different positions. And we see again that this parable is not a parable that is primarily addressing salvation. It is addressing those who are in the kingdom, those in fellowship in Christ. It is the continuation of the Lord's teaching throughout this passage. And so it is used that way. And so he finds this fellow servant. He takes him by the throat. He is literally choking him and demands that the servant pays up what is really a very minor debt. And it's unbelievable, it's, it's aggressive, it's violent, it's thuggish. And some argue, oh, well, you know, the original servant, he can't be a true believer. He can't be a true believer because of what he's doing. The difficulty is this. If the man, the servant that was forgiven, is not a believer, the whole impact of the parable disappears. Because it is speaking of one who has been fully forgiven going out and not being willing to forgive. If that initial forgiveness by the king was not real, was not genuine, then the parable makes no sense and it loses its impact. And we wouldn't expect him to forgive if he'd not been forgiven. We wouldn't expect him to act like his king if he didn't know the king or if God had not treated him with grace. If he was not forgiven, then judgment should have come in full in verse 27 and there'd be nothing else to say. And so this parable isn't primarily about salvation. It is about forgiveness and in particular, believers forgiving one another. And so the power and the impact of the Lord's teaching hits home because this servant had actually been forgiven greatly. He was really saved. He'd been delivered from his debt. And then he goes out and acts like this. And even though it is a a real debt, it's a real problem, the servant is consumed with anger and he will not forgive. Now, friends, if you don't think that believers have trouble forgiving each other, firstly, read the New Testament. And see some of the issues that arose in the churches. Or even just scan around the churches now. And see the reality. Believers struggle in this. The flesh still pulls us in a wrong direction in our redeemed lives. You know, maybe you can think of those who have wronged you. 
where you've been wounded by the consequences of their actions. Maybe you've choked them many times in your mind. These things happen in the church of Jesus Christ. Maybe someone has said something that you don't like. And so you just try and avoid that person. But when you see them, you feel that anger in your heart. And before you know it, there's a, there's a growing bitterness there and there's a grudge. And maybe it was something that happened years ago. And yet you just cannot let it go. Believers are not immune from that. Maybe there are people here this morning who are harboring that. They're unforgiving towards another. And it's causing pain and anxiety and tension but they will not forgive. It should not be. But believers can be like this servant in the parable. And see the response, verse 29. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me and I will pay you all. Now, do those words sound familiar? They should do. Because it was exactly the same plea that the servant had made to the king. The only difference being that there's no worship on this occasion because the issue is between two servants. But it's the same plea, the same plea for mercy. And here is a, a debtor with a far smaller debt making the same plea to this servant who has himself known forgiveness and yet his heart is hard to the cries of the one who is in distress, begging and pleading, crying out for patience and an opportunity to pay the debt off and the, the the sense there in that verse is that this debt could be paid unlike the debt of the the first to the king which is an unpayable debt nothing he could do about that this debt could be sorted out between them you know the application there is obvious our sin our debt against the sovereign is unpayable it's vast but in comparison the wrongs between brethren can be made right there can be uh, reconciliation and a coming together that's such a vital lesson especially for such a time as this it's a tragedy when we hear of churches in trouble when we hear of churches splitting and friction between brethren and bitterness festering and relationships ruined and division and decline and the enemy loves it and there's devastation in God's family and it's heartbreaking but it's more common than we want to admit Verse 30, and he would not, he would not forgive him, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. It is an astounding reaction. It is incredible to think of what this man has been blessed with in his own forgiveness, and yet he can act in this way, such a, a lack of compassion. He who had known great forgiveness, he should have been so ready to forgive. He'd known the love of the king, how, how ready he should have been to show that love. He, he'd received such undeserved mercy. He should have been quick to be merciful. And though the wrongs that we commit against others are not good, when compared to the sin that we have committed against God, they are as nothing. And yet God forgives his own. Who are we then to withhold forgiveness from a repentant brother or sister? And yet this servant would not. And that's why the parable is so powerful because he had been forgiven greatly, but he would not forgive the far lesser thing. How can beneficiaries of such incredible forgiveness then withhold that forgiveness? 
when we've received forgiveness so vast and so far-reaching, so comprehensive, how can we be so small as not to forgive one another? Yet churches and relationships between believers are far too often ruined by that lack of willingness to forgive and all the, the stubbornness and the bitterness and the hostility and the slander that comes. It should not be. And if you're a kingdom citizen by grace, you are to be merciful. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. When we withhold forgiveness, friends, it not only impacts our relationship with our brethren, but it also impacts our relationship with the Lord. And we don't know that relational forgiveness which makes our communion with the Lord sweet. You know, maybe if you've known a lack of depth in your spiritual life or lack of appetite in the word of God or struggles in prayer or just that closeness with the Lord. Maybe one element of it could be because you're withholding forgiveness from a brother or sister. Need to search our hearts. Then verse 31, there's another aspect to this. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, there are others who saw this. Other fellow servants, other believers, they saw it all. One commentator makes the point, and it's right because it follows through in the flow of the passage, that we can identify the pattern of discipline from verses 15 to 20 in the parable. And so they saw the unforgiving servant. No doubt at first someone would have gone to him. They would have no doubt taken others with him. They would have no doubt sought to have done all that they could, told it to the whole assembly to try and deal with him. The sense is that these fellow servants saw it and would have done all that they could to bring repentance, forgiveness, and reconciliation. But it was not enough. And the unforgiving servant refused to repent. And the others saw it. They'd been in the process, and they were very grieved. Do you know, that is a, a wonderful comment on their own heart attitude. They were so distressed and concerned about what they saw unfold before them. And that's the right response from hearts that have known forgiveness from the king. You know, that should be the response amongst God's forgiven people. It should grieve us. The need for discipline and dealing with forgiveness should be rare when God's people act in accordance to their position, to their life in Christ. Forgiven greatly, they will be eager and ready to forgive, and it grieves them, their hearts break when they see that not taking place. Because they know how it should be. They know how it will grieve the king. And as believers, we should understand God's holiness. We should understand how seriously he desires holiness in his people, the unity of his family, the richness of fellowship, and it should grieve us when sin ruins that. When the Lord is dishonored and fellowship is hindered. But where do you go when the person doesn't respond? What do you do then? Well, with hearts grieved, they come to the king. It's a beautiful picture, you know. Verse 31, they came and told their master all that had been done. They gave the master a clear, detailed, honest account of everything. They laid it all out before him. The whole process with heavy hearts. And it is a picture of the Lord's people going to him in prayer for the sinning brother or sister essential when there is a situation like this which arises and so these fellow servants they saw 
They were in the process and they went to the king. And so the king knows. What then is the response of the king? Look at verse 32. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Now there are some again who struggle and say, Oh, well, this can't be talking of a believer. God would never say that to a believer. The master calls the servant wicked. It can't possibly be a believer. But let me ask you this. What is wickedness? Well, wickedness is sin. Can a believer sin? Yes. Can the Lord convict and show us our sin if we are believers? Yes, he can. And so the Lord is affirming what is true. All unrighteousness is sin, and this servant had acted in a wicked manner. He had sinned in this manner. You know, and the the key thing in the whole of the parable is found here. The king says, I forgave you all that debt. That's so important. The Lord affirms the fact that he had given full forgiveness, that he had given mercy to the servant. The servant had been broken and convicted. He he pleaded with God for mercy. The Lord in his grace had, had forgiven and delivered. There was real forgiveness. That is vital. The king himself says, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant? If the forgiveness given by the master was not real, the second point is meaningless. The servant should have had compassion as he received the greater compassion. The unforgiving servant also, he shouldn't just have given opportunity for the debt to be paid back. No, he should have forgiven and written off the debt and absorbed the loss himself. It's a liberating thing to do that, by the way, to give forgiveness freely. And to show the compassion of Christ. But he didn't do that. And verse 34, his master was angry. Does not the Holy One of Heaven have a holy indignation against sin? Even when it's present in the lives of his children? And it says, and delivered him to the torturers, the jailers, the inquisitors, until he should pay all that was due to him. As one explains, that which provoked the king to wrath was not how the servant had managed the king's money, but how he had managed the king's mercy. You know, you think of discipline, Hebrews 12, and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. You know, every true believer at times will feel the torturers, the scourging at times when we are in sin, as the Lord lovingly disciplines us. That conviction, that burden, until we confess and repent and cry out to him. goes on in Hebrews 12, if you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons, for what son is there whom a father does not chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. So if we endure chastening when we stray, it is God dealing with us as his children from a heart of love to bring us back into the right path. God loves us enough to discipline us. And it's a difficult experience when it happens, but he will apply that convicting pressure until our response is right and we repent and we are in that place where we are living for him and honoring him. And that's why I agree with those who take the view that the end of verse 34 
is speaking of the servant being put under that chastening pressure until he pays what should be paid in the light of what he has done to that other servant. He could never pay his whole debt. That was unpayable. This is particularly regarding this latter element where he goes against his fellow servant. And so the severity of the chastening increases if we continue to rebel. And in the terms of the parable, this can mean being put into the hands of the torturers, as it were, pressure being applied upon us until we confess our sin and turn to the Savior. Friend, maybe in your walk with the Lord, you're struggling right now. And maybe part of it is the pressure applied, the chastening, because you are actively pursuing a line of disobedience. And the Lord is laying his hand upon you. Maybe you don't have that liberty and joy and freedom that you think you should have as a child of God. And maybe it can be traced to an unforgiving spirit. And as long as that remains, you won't know the experience of relief and restoration. The parable makes it clear that the one in sin will pay what can be paid and that this second debt will be satisfied when there is a brokenness, repentance, contrition, and a readiness to obey. And then the fellowship will be restored. Loving chastening always has that purpose of bringing change so that the mistake is not repeated. That's what the Lord does with his disobedient children. And then as we finish the conclusion there is a very sobering summary by our Savior. Verse 35, So my heavenly Father also will do to you, believers, if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. Again, this cannot be applied to unbelievers because how can unbelievers act like the Lord towards each other and forgive? They can't do that. No, this is for those who've known the forgiveness themselves, believers. It's a lesson for the family. One brother was forgiven and would not forgive and so is punished. If we've been forgiven greatly, we should be quick to forgive or we'll know the master's chastening. We ought to forgive because we have been forgiven so much. We ought to forgive because if we withhold forgiveness, it disturbs our fellowship with the Lord and brings his discipline. There's a Scottish minister called William Arnott and he wrote on this passage, gave this illustration about a traveler in Burma. And this traveler in Burma crossed a river, and when he came out, he found that his body was covered all over with small leeches sucking his blood. And his first impulse was to try and tear these leeches off his body, to tear the tormentors from his flesh. But the servant who was with him warned him not to do that, because if he did it, if he pulled them off like that, it would expose his life to danger. They shouldn't be torn off because there would be poison that would remain in the wounds and would fester and would eventually, at worst case, lead to death. And so they, they mustn't be torn off. They had to be spontaneously dropping off. And uh, to do that, the servant prepared a bath for his master with certain herbs, directed him to lie down in it. And as soon as he bathed in the balsam bath, the leeches just dropped off. You say, well, what's that got to do with this? Each unforgiven injury in the heart is like a leech sucking lifeblood. A mere human determination to have done with it won't cast the evil thing away. You have to bathe your whole being in God's pardoning mercy 
And he says, these venomous creatures will instantly let go their hold and you'll stand up free. You must bathe your whole being in the pardoning love of God. We can only forgive as we appreciate the grace that has been lavished upon us. Even when we've been wounded and hurt and when our fellow servant is repentant, we need to forgive, to be serious before the Lord in forgiving the offense and truly setting it aside. Trusting in the power and the grace of God to overcome, to actually reconcile and embrace those we have forgiven. Now, there will be times when thoughts of what has been done will resurface. And we need to take that to the Lord and ask him to help us to deal with it. Nor does it mean that wrong is just swept under the carpet and overlooked. It has to be dealt with. But it does mean that we willingly end the division, the pain, and seek for the restoration of the relationship because that's what the Lord desires for there to be strong relationships in his family. And if we are a family of believers who genuinely love each other, if we are quick to forgive, then we will be so unlike this world. And what a testimony for the power of the gospel. You know, we can pray for unity, we can pray for peace, we can use many words, but we will only experience this when we actually learn to forgive in reality and pursue that. And so, friend, in the first instance, let me ask you, have you known that wonderful forgiveness of the Lord in dealing with your sin? That unpayable debt which can be dealt with by the Lord Jesus. Have you repented and turned from your sin to trust in the deliverance of the Savior, the one who gave his life as a ransom for many? I pray that you would come to him and you would know the joy of forgiveness, the burden lifted, know what it is to be forgiven so that you can become a forgiver, forgiven greatly. But if you're a believer this morning, you search your heart. And ask the Lord to reveal any unforgiveness or bitterness or anger that remains. And we are saved only by the undeserved mercy of God. And so we are to be merciful. We are to be forgivers. That is evidence of new life in us. And we need the grace of God to enable us to do that. To overcome those sinful tendencies that make us unforgiving If we harbor that, our fellowship with the Lord will struggle, our relationships with our brethren will struggle, and that must not be. I pray that the Lord would help us, and I pray that he would apply these things to us, that ultimately we would rejoice in the forgiveness he has given, and that would be demonstrated in the way that we deal with one another. May he help us. Amen.